If you'd like to, take a Bible and turn to the book of 1 Timothy toward the end of the New Testament. I've been preaching a series of sermons from 1 Timothy off and on for the past few months, and now we come to the last chapter, chapter 6 of, of 1 Timothy. Just a reminder that, that this letter was written by the Apostle Paul. He had gone to the city of Ephesus, planted a church there amid much uh, division and opposition uh, from those who made money off of the worship at the temple Diana. And now it's about 10 years later, after the church had begun, Paul had spent his longest time in one place of ministry. That was three years. He had led people to Christ. He had established the leadership. And when he had departed from the, the leaders, he had told them that savage wolves would arise even from their own midst that would come in seeking to lead the flock astray. That has indeed happened, and so he has sent his key man, Timothy, uh, to go to Ephesus and to pastor the church and to set things straight. We've looked at the previous five chapters, and he's given a lot of instruction about public prayer, about uh, leadership in the church, about the qualifications for elders and deacons. He's talked uh, in the last chapter, in chapter 5, we saw how uh, we're to relate to one another, younger men to older men, uh, younger men to older women, uh, to younger women, all sorts of relationships in the church, how to, uh, how to relate to spiritual leadership, to those who are in positions of spiritual leadership. Now we come to the last chapter, and he's still dealing, even as he, the Apostle Paul begins to close the letter down, He's still dealing with practical issues and instructions. And he's going to talk about slaves and their masters, since the majority of the Roman Empire at that time uh, were slaves. We'll just touch on that. Uh, he's going to talk about false teachers, and the main attention I want to give today, he's going to talk about contentment and how we view money, whether we are poor or whether we have a lot. So it's a very practical section. Hear God's word. I'll begin reading in verse 1, then to verse 10, then I'll skip down to verse 17. Let all who are under a yoke as bondservants regard their own masters as worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. Those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers. Rather, they must serve all the better, since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. Teach and urge these things. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, and to many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Now down to verse 17, if you will. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, 
nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good deeds, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Let us pray together. Our Father, we we pray for uh, submissive hearts and open minds to your truth. Would ask that you would give us each individually guidance as we look at this, especially in the area of contentment. In Christ's name we pray, amen. I skipped over some of the verses I plan to come back to because it was almost though he gives another subject and then picks up where he left off. A couple of years ago, I read a book, a very short book, but a very engaging book written by John Krakauer. And it was later made into a movie entitled Into the Wild. Uh, It's the story of Christopher McCandless. Christopher was a young man from a well-to-do family who graduated from Emory. And immediately after graduating with honors from Emory, he changed his name. He gave the entire $24,000 savings account that his family had for him, he gave that to charity. He abandoned his car. He burned all the cash in his wallet. And then he invented a new life for himself, taking up residence on the ragged edge, you might say, of society, wandering all across North America. On a search for meaning and transcendence, he ultimately hitchhiked to Alaska. He walked alone into the wilderness north of Mount McKinley. Four months later, his dead body was found by a group of moose hunters. And Krakauer's book, was and is an attempt to understand, to explain the thinking which went into this young man's course of action, a course of action that many of us would view as bizarre. One of the many motives which drove Chris McCandless to check out of society was a struggle, a true, genuine struggle to understand the relationship of human beings and material items uh, and money itself. He was convinced that money and wealth prevent us from experiencing life as it should be lived. Although I think he was confused and he was mistaken in his conclusions, it doesn't take much reading of church history to find out that people in general and Christians in particular through the ages have tried to find some sort of balance between using material things while not being materialistic. If you've been a Christian any amount of time, you know that that is a difficult, difficult area to deal with, to find a balance. And so let's examine this passage, even though it's consecutive as we've gone through 1 Timothy. uh, I want us to look at this in particular as it addresses such questions. Um, I want to look first at the false teachers uh, there in in verses uh, 4 and following, 5 and following. There were false teachers in the church at Ephesus. We've been reminded of that before. And they had a basic theological error. If you say, where were they in error? He says it in verse 3. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness. This is the basic problem. Really, with every form of bad theology, in one way or another, such teaching, false teaching, does not adhere to what the Bible teaches about the person and the work of Jesus Christ. 
And he uses a word here. He says the Bible teaches teaching about Christ is sound. He uses that word more than once. I found that's a medical term. It means healthy. Solid biblical teaching, especially sound words about Jesus Christ, produce spiritual health and well-being. And so when it says the teaching, the sound teaching of our Lord, he's talking about the apostolic teaching about Jesus. He's probably referring to Jesus' own words as recorded in the Gospels. It may even refer to both. But in any case, the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ comprise the Christian gospel. That Jesus was the Son of God, that he lived a perfect life, that he suffered and died a substitutionary death, that he was buried, that he was raised from the grave. That is sound instruction. It yields health and well-being. So the difference between true religion and false religion always comes down to Jesus Christ, who he is and what he did. And the reason that Reformed Christians oppose the teaching of Muslims and Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses and others is not that those religions are immoral in and of themselves or that they don't do good civil things like blood drives and things like that. We oppose it because it's unsound in the teaching about Jesus Christ. They deny his deity. They reduce him to the status of a mere human being. Typically, other world religions outside of the United States, per se, or those that didn't originate here, they reduce him to that of a mere human being, and they deny primarily his work. They do not accept his sacrifice for sin or his bodily resurrection from the dead. So the true understanding comes from the scriptures of the Old and New Testaments. And this and this alone is what verse 3 says, the teaching that accords with godliness. Now in Ephesus, the result of theological error was that there was trouble in the church. And we can recognize that sound biblical teaching does bring health. False teaching makes the church sick. It will be unhealthy. And Paul says several things about them. They love controversy. They love to argue about words. And then he also adds they are in it for the money. He says in verse 5, the bottom line for them is that they see godliness as a means of gain, financial gain. In other words, they were in the ministry for the money. Greed always has been, it always will be a danger in the church. This was true in the Middle Ages when we have the sale of indulgences that made salvation something that could be purchased with money. It continues today, and it's not every week, but it's, you know, probably annually there's some major scandal reported from some ministry leader in some church. Uh, I'm not justifying that, but let's not be surprised when it happens. It will continue to happen. And that's why one reason Paul himself was very, very careful in his use of money. He refused, as he says in 2 Corinthians 2, to peddle the word of God for profit. Um, the apostle understood that the Holy Spirit's work does not require money. Now think about this, because I just made an appeal for you to consider making a faith promise. Money, 60 thousand dollars to complete 
a project among other things in our faith promise giving. But of all the resources the church needs to do its work as far as seeing hearts changed and lives changed and reaching people for Christ and evangelizing and so forth, of all the resources that the church needs to do the work, money by far is the least important. What I mean is you can't buy the Spirit's power. We can't, with money, cause the Holy Spirit to open people's eyes to the gospel. Of course, how can they hear unless there's a preacher? How can they go unless they are sent? That takes money to send people out. But I think we elevate money thinking if we, it, that, that that's the main thing that's needed to make ministry, or one of the main things to make ministry happen. But I think when you look at it closely, of all the things needed, the resources needed by the church to do its work, money is the least important. Church Father Tertullian put it this way, nothing that is God's is obtainable by money. Now, the next several verses talk about contentment. They're not just about money because it's almost two different subjects, but often our contentment and money are related. So in verses 6 to 10, he's going to give some particular instructions to the Christian poor. He's going to talk about those who don't have much. And he's going to give some instruction. Then in verses 17 and following, he's going to talk about those who are people of means. And they're Christians. And what should their responsibilities be? Okay, first the Christian poor, then the Christian wealthier. And he takes that phrase that the false teachers were, that he said about the false teachers, that they viewed godliness as a means of gain, and they meant it, and he meant it by financial gain. And then he gives it, he turns it on its head, and he continues to use that phrase, but he gives a different meaning to it. And rather than contradicting that, he says, but godliness is gain, providing you mean spiritual gain, not financial gain, and providing you add contentment to it. We find here that our contentment should not rest on external things. Paul himself had said in the book of Philippians, I have learned the secret of being content in any and every circumstance, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in poverty or in want. He says this Christian secret, as he calls it, is not found within yourself but in Christ. He said, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. So genuine contentment is not self-sufficiency, it is Christ-sufficiency. And this is why godliness plus contentment equals great spiritual gain. So here are the two categories. First, to the Christian poor. First, the contented poor in verses 7 and 8. For we brought nothing into the world, we cannot take anything out of it. These people are not destitute. Destitute people have absolutely nothing. I mean, they have nothing. People in Darfur and places, we'll see pictures, and living in the desert or traveling through the desert. Children with no clothes even to put on, much less food and water. That is truly being destitute when you have nothing. Destitute people lack basic necessities for survival. Nobody should be content while destitute. Nobody can be content while destitute. Here he says, rather, these people do have food and clothing and are content with that. 
How does he urge them to be content? Well, he reminds them of the fundamental fact of our human experience, that is, we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain we can take nothing out of it. The Old Testament mentions this often. Job said, naked I came from my mother's womb, naked I shall depart. We are born with empty hands, we will die with empty hands. We will die naked and penniless. And when we die and are buried, that's the condition we will be in. So in respect to material possessions, we will depart the same way we came in. I read a story years ago of a man who was very wealthy and his desire was that he told his family when he was buried he wanted to be buried in a brand new Cadillac with a thousand dollar suit on with a big expensive Cuban cigar in his mouth. So after the family had left the ceremony, the, one of the men working at the uh, cemetery who was going to operate the lift to lower this thing down into this large grave, he looked in there and he said to one of his buddies, now man, that's living. We will go out the same way we came in, with nothing. And so Paul's reminding Timothy not to be a downer, not to be discouraging, but he's saying this is a perspective that we should all have in our view of possessions and our lifestyles and so forth. Possessions are the only luggage, you might say, of our time. And therefore, it, makes smart, it may be smart to travel light. What then should our attitude be to material things? Paul replies, if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. So here's how we begin to move toward Christian contentment. We recognize that luxuries are not essential to contentment. Necessities are. And these just uses the term food and clothing. You say, what about shelter? Well, from what I read, the phrase food and clothing almost implies shelter, so let's throw that into... He's not saying that's the maximum everyone should have. If you have a, enough to eat, and a, a canvas or some kind of tent or roof over your head, and a shirt and a pair of pants, men, he's saying that, that, you, that that's it. That's all, all you need, therefore that, that's the maximum you should have. No, he's not restricting us to that, but he's saying if you have that, then that is enough with which to be content. So if you have six sets of clothes and really want to have ten then according to this, you can be, con you, you, if you think you'll be content there, you know you, you can be content with one set of clothes. So he's not advocating a rigid self-denial. He's not even advocating that we should all just live and make this a simple, most basic existence. But he's saying you can be content with the minimum. The evangelical commitment to a simple lifestyle puts it well. It said, We resolve to renounce waste and oppose extravagance in personal living, clothing, and housing, travel, and church buildings. We also accept the distinction between necessities and luxuries, creative hobbies and empty status symbols, modesty and vanity, occasional celebrations and normal routine, and between service of God and slavery to fashion. Where to draw the line requires conscientious thought and decision by us together with members of our family. Now he gives some words not to the contented poor, but to the covetous poor. These were people who did not have much, and they, they really, really wanted more. 
verses 9 and 10. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. So there are warnings about covetousness all through the Bible. We're warned that money itself is addictive, since whoever loves money never has enough. Uh, The Old Testament says one eager to get rich will not go unpunished. And that we should, we find in the Old Testament that we should pray that we have neither poverty nor riches, but only daily bread. Jesus told us to beware of greed. He reminded us that life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. The Apostle Paul here now takes this up and he says, People who want to get rich fall. Fall where? They fall into temptation and a trap. Secondly, the second warning is if you desire, if you are covetous and desire to be rich, you fall into many foolish and harmful desires. Greed is a desire and it breeds other desires. Money can be like a drug and covetousness is an addiction. The more you have, the more you want. And Paul says these further desires are foolish and harmful. And they bring bondage, not freedom. I think it was John Stott that said, Gold is like seawater. The more you drink, the thirstier you become. The third thing he mentions, the third and final stage in the downfall of the covetous, is their wrong desires plunge them into ruin and destruction. The idea is disaster in this life and hell in the next. And that's why Jesus said, what good is it for a man to gain the whole world and to lose his own soul? And then Paul gives what is the most misquoted phrase in the Bible, the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. He says the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. What kinds of evil? Well, greed leads to selfishness, cheating, fraud, perjury, robbery, envy, quarreling, hatred, violence, even murder. Greed lies behind marriages of convenience, perversions of justice, exploitation of the weak, neglect of good causes, betrayal of friends. And he chooses to focus on two particular evils which spring from covetousness. Wandering away from the faith is the first one that mentions here. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith. It's not possible to pursue truth and money and mammon and God at the same time. The second, they have pierced themselves with many griefs. The pangs of a hardened conscience. The discovery that having more does never satisfy. And the final despair that brings. In summary, what Paul is instructing here is that covetousness, he's talking to the, to the poor at this stage. He's saying that covetousness is a self-destructive evil. Now, Verse 16, quickly. 16, verse 17 through 19. Now he gives some instruction to the Christian rich. First in verse 17, some negative instructions. First negative instructions, beware pride. Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant. And you don't have to be rich to be arrogant. You can go from having a negative $5 bank account to having $100 And there's a change in your attitude, and if you're not careful, you can look down on the person who has the negative $5. And you didn't look look down on them before. Wealth often gives birth to pride and arrogance. It makes us feel self-important. 
we look down on others. The second danger to which the wealthy are exposed is a false sense of security. Verse 17 says, warn them not to put their hope in wealth. To do so is foolish and short-sighted. Wealth, in one reason, is so uncertain. Our, the past, I don't think I need to say much about that since 2007. Jesus warned of laying up treasure only here on earth, which can be ravaged by moth, rust, and burglars. Many people have gone to bed rich and waked up poor. But he says, tell them to put their hope in God. So the two dangers to which the wealthy are exposed are false pride, looking down on those who have less, and a false security, trusting in the gift rather than the giver. Here are the positive instructions to the rich. First, this is verses 18 and 19. First, the wealthy should have a sense of responsibility. Command those who are rich to be rich in good deeds. They should use their wealth to provide relief for those in need and to do good. And in doing so, they will imitate God, who is rich. Yet out of his riches, he richly provides us with everything we need. The second word of instruction is the rich need a sense of proportion. Verse 19, in this way they will lay up treasure for themselves. As they do these good things for others, they are laying up treasure for themselves in heaven. So to summarize, both the negative and the positive commands to the wealthy, they're not to be proud and to despise the poor, but to do good and to be generous. They are not to fix their hopes on uncertain riches, but on God, the giver, and on that most valuable of all gifts, the treasure of eternal life. Where are you in this passage? We're all in here somewhere. All of us fit here. Guard your heart against greed and covetousness. Beware pride that comes from a larger bank account. You say larger than whose? Larger than somebody else's. There's a pride that comes from a higher net worth, especially relative to those around you. Beware of putting your hope or trust in what you have, for it will let you down. Years ago, we had a British pastor named Dick Lucas, well-known pastor. I forgot how we got him. He was here one Sunday night and preached. I think he was passing through. Dick Lucas tells the story of a man he met who went to a church in the most prosperous county in England. This man was seeking God. And he went to this church that he did not know at the time, but basically kind of had a health and wealth theology. Trust God and he'll give you more from which you can give more to us. And the minister talked to him afterwards, and the minister told him that if he trusted in God, then God would give him a, a Jaguar automobile. And this troubled the man. You know why it troubled him? Because he already owned a Jaguar. And he said he went out of the church... And he walked away and he said, that pastor told me, if I believe in God, that God wants me to have a Jaguar. But you see, I already have a Jaguar. And my life is still empty and meaningless. Doesn't Christianity have anything more to offer me than an automobile? Doesn't it have any more to offer me than just more possessions or some particular thing I want? Yes, it does. What you will leave this life with is whether you are right with God. Are you in Christ? In the Old Testament, we have the account of Noah and the ark 
and God's destroying mankind, he told Noah to build this large vessel, loaded it with pairs of animals, preached while it was being constructed, and everyone in the ark when the flood came survived. The New Testament tells us that that ark was figurative of Jesus, that he's the ark, and that if we are in him when the judgment of God comes, we will be saved. Are you in the ark? Have you believed in him? Have you received him and repented of your sins and received his grace and mercy? Let's pray together. Our Father, we give you thanks and praise that you are the most valuable thing and that we can leave this world with you and with Christ as we leave possessions behind. We pray for sensitivity about stewardship as believers and giving and sacrificial giving, and it is a difficult area. A father, especially as we have more. So give us sensitivity and uh, willing obedience to your Holy Spirit. Give us wisdom that we lack in and of ourselves. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.